Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Huntig. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new, especially in episode 200 and I don't know, something. Uh, In case you were unaware, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and we like to talk about the latest happenings and cars that we've been driving uh, in this automotive industry that we're in. Ben, before we get started, why don't you tell us about some of the publications that you've recently written for so people can find your work. You can find my work at Inside Hook, at Motor Trend, and at Driving Line. That's it? Well, that's where I'm going to cap it, Sammy. Do you want me to keep, I mean, we could keep going if you wanted to. Uh, and you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine and TechSpot. This week, Ben, I'm going to start us off because I drove a brand new car. Like, I mean brand new. Like, Although there are some things that have been carried over in it, so maybe it's not that new. Wait, so is uh, it I'm... brand new or is it not brand new? Because my trust in you is eroding fast. <laughs> okay, okay. Let me just let me let me try to recover the the, the lost trust here. I drove specifically the twenty twenty two. That's a lot of twos. MDX from Acura. You know this. You know this car. That's the most twos you're gonna have until twenty two twenty two. That's true. Just so you know. So um. The new MDX is important, I think, because the old MDX was pretty popular, but I think started becoming kind of uh, static, really kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Old hat. Yeah, I guess that's the best phrase to use. A lot of other automakers have really started catching up, and I think Acura is losing a, a, a lot of ground in terms of reputation because... Well, they're not coming out with new stuff all that often. We have the new TLX that came out uh, just a few months ago, and the uh, RDX came out, I think, almost a year and a half ago. And we're just waiting for them to get their footing and show us what they're capable of. Is that what we've got with the MDX? There's a bit of a yes and a no to that. What do you want to know first? Well, as to the yes and the no, as I understand it, we have one version of the MDX that's out now. But mm-hmm. the really cool version isn't coming out until this summer. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So let me let me start off by saying um, the one thing that really disappointed me about this MDX was that the powertrain or the motor is actually um, a carryover, essentially, from the last generation model, which means it's a 3.5 liter V6 that makes 290 horsepower. What Ben was alluding to is the upcoming Type S version of the MDX, which will feature a turbocharged V6. Um, which should make more horsepower than 290, but I don't really know. Do you know? I don't really know either. I don't know if anyone is for sure on how much that would make. I would think less than 400. <laughs> that doesn't seem like enough. If, no, it if... doesn't. Because it's weird, though, because if you think about it, like 290, if if they make one that's like, let's say, 370 from this Turbo V6, it's, I guess, enough of a gap over the regular MDX, but it's not really a crushing amount of power compared to a real performance SUV. So, I mean, it's less right. than what you get in a base Lincoln Aviator, right? So... <laughs> yeah. Great. I love it. I always love it. My favorite thing is that when we talk about a car that we're excited about and we bring up a Lincoln. Well, I'm just saying Lincoln has a really impressive base power plant and it's also a turbo V6. I think it's a three liter. So if if Acura doesn't match that, it's hard to see that drivetrain as anything other than an also ran. I know that sounds sounds harsh, but I I think that's accurate. No, I think this is exactly where I need to begin. 
vehicles like the Lincoln Aviator or the Cadillac XT6 have have shown up the MDX in years in years prior, and this new MDX has to be better than those. Than those. That it just has to. Like that is the reputation of of Acura uh, on the line, and I'm not sure that this car totally does it. It does just enough to still be mentioned. When I think the lesser impressive cars in this segment. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, though. Like, what about the MDX? Since we got the carryover motor, what about it is new that would be impressive? Okay. Like, I know the styling right. is different, and I know the interior is different, but are they different enough to be like, oh, hey, I, that's worth upgrading from my current MDX? Yeah, I think that's important to start. We'll, we'll talk about the, the powertrain one more time. It made it to that engine, that carryover 290-horsepower engine, is a new 10-speed automatic, which is pretty good. Um, really smooth, even at low speeds, which is uh, sometimes where you run into some stumbling issues with um, transmissions with over, I don't know, eight eight um, gears. Sometimes those early gears, those first gears are really, like, clunky. It can be and finicky. It can be, like, it, it can feel like it's never in the right gear and it doesn't know where the right gear is. And then you kind of enter this cycle of endless gear changes. Exactly. And I didn't find that happening in the MDX at all. Um, and secondly, although it's not new, one of the main reasons I think the MDX gained so much attention is because of a well-branded all-wheel drive system that they call Super Handling All-Wheel Drive, which sends power to all four wheels and can also shift torque, uh, a, a lot of torque rearward, and also send wor- the, 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 that available torque to the rear left and rear right wheels. So it's a pretty, um, I guess, clever all-wheel drive system. But I think other automakers are also catching up in that in that uh, realm as well. Um, where else is it new? There's a new double wishbone front suspension, which is interesting, which helps the um, the MDX feel a little bit more um, comfortable and also responsive, which is which is a pair of traits that usually don't come together. Um, a, a very responsive car can sometimes be pretty stiff, and um, as a res- the, the, and not always. Will that jive with a sort of a luxury atmosphere? And you don't really, you don't really have that trade-off here. It is very responsive, and uh, in, in terms of ride and chassis, uh, yet very comfortable as well. My biggest issues with the car uh, include the infotainment system, which uses a touch uh, pad to navigate, and not only just a touchpad, a very an overly sensitive touchpad, which is almost obnoxious to the to use. It just it's not fun to use. Um, very finicky. You need a lot of mental load to take off the the road in front of you to to use this touchpad. Um, and I just wish it had a touch a touch screen or something so, like that because I don't get it. We've I, I yeah. can't remember for how many years every single automotive journalist I've ever spoken to has said touchpads are a bad idea inside a vehicle for exactly the reasons you just pointed out you have to pay so much more attention to uh the actual touchpad versus the driving that you're trying not to you know kill yourself and other people mm-hmm. and and yet it's 2022 and this brand new model has yet another touchpad that is going to be terrible and, and you're saying is terrible and it i don't get why are car companies not listening i i have to add there's also so many other weird things about so in order for you, okay, so let's say you've got, um, this, this infotainment system has a couple of screens that you have to scroll, scroll through. But because you're using this touchpad, um, basically wherever you move your finger to is what you're selecting on the screen. In order for you to go to another page, you have to slide your finger quite quickly 
um, across the touchpad to make it flick to the other the page. And when it does that, a really odd noise accompanies that motion, like a like a like a wind chime or something like that, but a little bit more janky, more like a someone shaking chains at you. That's what it reminded <laughs> me. Of. Like, it's sh- almost as like though that. the people who are being paid to design these interfaces have never driven a car or perhaps seen a car being driven by someone else. That's honestly the impression I get. And um, the other thing that really disappointed me about the MDX was the steering feel in the uh, in this in the normal driving mode, which was a little too light for my liking, especially at low speeds. It, it felt really disconnected, which is a shame because I mentioned that front suspension is quite good, and if you don't have the good the good steering to go along with that suspension. It feels a little uh, a little disconnected. However, there are a couple of different drive modes, including a, an individual mode, which allowed me to put everything else in comfort except for the steering, and I was able to get my sort of uh, the drive experience that I was looking for. I need to add that the interior of the MDX is much better than it used to be, but still doesn't stand above anything in any, in any particular way. It's not super practical. I think the second row is, is, is very good, but there is a third row which seems almost... Uh, unusable, um, and there are no like automatic buttons to raise or lower these these functions, these seats um, from the cargo area or something like that. You, it's like a, a bunch of levers and stuff. That that's you've got yeah. See, that's one of my increasing frustrations with luxury vehicles, especially if they have a deep cargo bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if you can't reach forward and do it from the back, I don't want to have to go around to the side and do it from an open door. Um, especially if I may be parked in a tight space where that's difficult to get to, or the fact that I'm paying pretty big money for a luxury vehicle and I kind of want luxury features, you know, like I'm not not trying to be princess in the pea here. I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of someone who has paid full sticker for an Acura MDX. So that's what I think is important to bring up. The pricing of this vehicle is actually fairly competitive. It starts at $47,000 for a front wheel drive model that I don't think, I really don't think you should. And like super handling all wheel drive is one of the main reasons you should buy an act, uh, an Acura product full stop. Like that's one of the main reasons they have, they exist, I think. So uh, an all wheel drive MDX starts at $49,000 and tops out at uh, $60,000. And I think that's a pretty good value. However, I also think that there are other vehicles I- 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 that you need to check out. As we mentioned, the Lincoln Aviator. I need to take a look at the price of the Lincoln Aviator. Well, 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 well I mean, this is a three-row vehicle, right? Yeah. And it's a tight third row. It is a very tight third row. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about the MDX is I've always found the driving experience to be fairly bland unless you've got the, the Sport Hybrid. And that okay. model is no longer in the cards, or if it is, it's not coming for 2021. So the Turbo, I think, is going to have to – the Turbo model, the Type S, I think it's going to have to occupy not just the same space – not just the space of people who want the most powerful version of the MDX and want to be competitive with other sporty SUVs of that size. But it's also going to have to attract sport hybrid owners because that's kind of the role that the hybrid had previously, except you're not really going to see any fuel mileage benefit from the you know turbo engine which of indeterminate tune. Right. So, uh, you know what, while you were while you were t- just saying that and and pointing out, I think a vehicle that I actually miss, which is the uh sport hybrid system, which is lightly related to the NSX, which is a halo product for for Acura and this just doesn't like relate really well. The GV80 on the other hand, uh, that is a, truly a darling of the automotive industry right now, starts at $48,000, so not far from the starting price of an MDX. 
And um, while the while the Aviator starts at fifty one thousand um, dollars, which is more than than both of those cards we just mentioned. So, but I again, as 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 we as we said, it's a lot more powerful than mm-hmm. the Acura, and uh, we don't know the pricing for the Type S. Right. So we that's my biggest thing is I feel like they're maybe like Acura is maybe holding back to deliver something really special with this Type S. I don't know what it will be. I don't know if there's going to be more automated features for those for those seats or something. Uh, I'm sure that there's going. To, my my model didn't even have a head-up display. I, I think that's in the most fully loaded vehicle, and I didn't even have that. Um, as I said, the steering was really kind of not my not to my liking. The design is pretty good. It, it is both new and refreshing, but also somewhat familiar. I think you'll recognize it as an MDX, even if you you have no idea that a new MDX is happening. Um, so I'm. I'm both happy that the MDX has been refreshed because I think it's a very good product overall. It's just not good enough to make an, a, a fantastic splash in this industry and what Acura needed, what Acura needed it to be. Maybe the Type S will be it uh, and will we'll get people excited again, but it needs to be something really special, and I don't know if we're getting that yet. And it's also odd to not lead with your best, you know, your best product. Unless they just plan a- on not selling many Type Ss and... They're, they they know that they have a certain number of MDX buyers who are just going to keep coming back to the well every time because they're familiar and comfortable with the vehicle, and, and the Type S is just there for flash and to to attract media attention. I, I don't know. It, it, it seems like an odd strategy. I want to talk about that actually, exactly that, because I think another automaker uh, banks on this reputation or this revolving door of customers, and that's Lexus. Lexus. This is a better product than one of the most popular vehicles in the segment, which is the Lexus RX. It wow, is a better. That is a strong. Well, to be fair, the RX it's not a three row vehicle unless you get the RX XL, right, or whatever it's called. The the RX L, yes. Okay, and that's a junk third row. Like it, it is as wow. bad as this third row. It is. Was that a moment of silence for the for the uh, RX's third row? <laughs> that's what it felt like. But you know what? I think there's actually I actually think there's buttons to lower the third row in the RXL. So are there buttons that lower the third row into a grave, and then you cover it with a flag, and then that like taps plays, and and then you're like, we'll never sit in that again. What I'm trying to say is the Lexus RX is very popular. Um, is good is a good enough product. It gets a ton of sales every year. I think it's the most popular Lexus product, and and, and as you point out, I mean, it is very good for what it is, which is a comfortable insulated. Uh, crossover. I, I haven't driven the latest one. I actually have one coming uh, next month, I believe. So I'm curious about that. But and the MDX is better than it. But okay. is that an, is that an, like you need to build? You need to what they'll be. Lexus is so good at building on its reputation of delivering a product exactly when a, when a customer wants it and needs it. And I don't think Acura is is pulling that off right now with the don't, MDX. They don't. needed to they needed to bring in something. That was better than what it was before, and I don't think they did. Both these crossovers, I believe, have touchpad infotainment systems. Yeah. So is actually, it possible- the new, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, the new Lexus RX does have a touchscreen as well. That screen is okay. Touch- so it has both, but is it possible that there's like a world of people out there who love touchpads and who only buy these two vehicles, <laughs> and that <laughs> and that the massive volume that Lexus sees for their their RX, they translate that into thinking people want touchpads, and so yeah. They're, and then everyone else in, at Lexus it's is like, no, please don't put it in our – please don't put it in the LS. Please don't put it in the IS. And, and they're like, no, you don't understand. The RX is so popular and it's because of this touchpad. And then it just spreads. 
Well, I mean, I guess you're right. It's justified, right? Like the the they don't see that they're still selling so many RX and NX as we talked about last week, um, and and you know, I guess there are so few complaints about that touchpad from the customers um, that it doesn't really matter to them. But you know, the- at the same time, Porsche. Porsche sold a version of the 911 and the Boxster and they came in with a something called an, an IMS bearing that failed. This is from like 98, I think, to 2010, 2011. And it was like a roll of the dice. Like you never knew if the IMS in that straight or that flat six was going to fail or not. Uh, I think it was something like 10% of them did. But it, can you imagine like the boardroom conversation where they're in Por- they're at Porsche and they're like, hey, should we fix this this IMS bearing? And then someone was like, well, you know, people keep buying the car. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see the point. Right? I don't see. Yeah, I, yeah, it doesn't seem to. It doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> um, I will add one more thing in regards to uh, the now tangential Lexus conversation. The Lexus NX is getting a a new model soon, and uh, there have been some rumors and leaks that the interior will no longer feature a touchpad infotainment system. So maybe we've been all of our complaining has has led to something. That's the second most exciting Lexus news of this past week. <laughs> Wait, what was the first? The first is that the Lexus IS is getting a V8 for no reason at all. Oh, right, yes. And it's not going to be called the ISF. It's just going to be called the IS500. Yeah, it's, it's so, well, <laughs> F-Sport 500, I think. Isn't that oh, in sorry. there? It, so it's interesting. It's like we used to have an ISF, and it was pretty cool. Uh, had you know, the, I like that engine from Lexus. And it's then the that same engine, engine that we get now. I'm sorry. It's the same engine, isn't it? I, I think it's very similar. It's the same engine that you'll find in the LC500. I think that's the only place you can get it these days. Oh no, the yeah. LS is also offers that engine um, because it has that, and then there's the hybrid. It has the turbocharged V6. Um, the so the RCF. LS, the LS, and the yeah. Please listen to me, RCF. I'm sorry. What RC- about the RCF? I think the RCF's off the market, is it not? Oh, great. I screwed up now. Okay. I thought I thought it was dead as of last year. I'm not 100% sure on that. Anyway. Okay, cool. So this engine this engine's coming out, and, it, and it's weird because in all the, the press materials that we've seen, they say, okay, so this isn't the full ISF. It's not the full F version of the car. It's meant to go up against the M340 and the, you know, the Audi S4, despite having like 150 more horsepower. Yeah. Than either of those vehicles, so it's kind of strange. It's like Cadillac's V, uh, not V Sports. Sorry, the the CT5 V, basically, but with CT5 V Blackwing levels of power, like approaching <laughs> yeah. that. So, I don't know what's. Does this mean we're going to get a really, really powerful IS a year from now? That, that's kind of what they're setting us up for, and I hope that's true because otherwise, I'm going to feel so let down, Sammy. And honestly, after the year we've just had, I don't know if I'd recover. Oh, Ben. I think if it's not the ISF, and this is just the IS500, uh, F-Sport or whatever they're going to call it, that's a good thing for whatever the ISF will be. Whether that's going to be a twin turbocharged V6, a turbocharged V8, something with a hybrid. You know it's going to be a hybrid. It's going to be like a – it's going to have like 10 more horsepower with a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> then, then that's a shame. <laughs> or hear me out, dual engine turbo four with a hybrid. Ooh. Boom. But yeah, it, it, that is an interesting. It is an. It was. It was surprising news to me. Um, I don't know if it was surprising news to you. Yes, because... it came out of nowhere. Everything. Yeah. About the, everything about the announcement is surprising. The IS is a car I thought that Lexus had forgotten about because very few people buy it compared to its rivals. Then you and look the at... recent generation of it really didn't seem like a significant 
upgrade. And then you see the the fact that entry level luxury cars to begin with are kind of on a downslope in terms of popularity. So again, a little weird for Lexus to be investing in this car. And then out of the blue, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, it's not the most powerful IS. It's just one of the ISs that's going to be powerful. And you're like, none of these three things together are predictable. None of it makes sense. It's really weird. And it's even weirder because Lexus doesn't do unpredictable. Like that's (laughs) not, that's, you were just talking about that, you know? So it's, it's, very it's fascinating i I think it would be really cool if this like shook out into other areas of their of their uh vehicle lineup i'd love to see lexus make some crazy moves because we know they have the engineering and the design capabilities to make stuff that's really neat the lc is one of the coolest cars on the market but it's really the only cool lexus in the lineup yeah absolutely uh i mean i think there are some interesting design decisions they've made over the years no i'm Uh, talking about right now Right yeah. now, there's only one interesting Lexus. I thought you kind of liked the U- the UX. Yeah, I, I kind of like it, but I, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about like the LC cool. versus the UX. That's a that's a large gap. Okay, gotcha. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, you know what 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 we have next to talk about in the podcast might be relatable. You you have a car that's from the parent company of, of Lexus, right? Yes, I do, and it's a car that Sammy has disappointed me in a way few others have. In the first few months of 2021, what what could it possibly be? Like a Yaris, a a uh, a Corolla, or something? What is this? Both of those cars I like. This is the uh, Toyota Venza, and the new Venza disappointed you. Have we talked about the Venza on the podcast in the past? No, not really. So this is our first Venza talk. So I'm going to break it down. The Venza is essentially a less useful version of the Rav Four. And specifically, a less useful version of the RAV4 Hybrid. Now, when I say less useful, I mean it's smaller inside because it's gone for style over substance. It's it's a vehicle that kind of like the Nissan Murano has a sloping rear roof, so you end up with less cargo space and less passenger space. I don't personally have a problem with that. I think that the idea of Toyota offering a platform that is good uh, in a different wrapper that appeals to i'd say a demographic that's maybe not as practical as those who are buying the rav4 i mean that that, that's a perfectly cromulent idea (laughs) but the execution of this vehicle sammy i was shocked at what it was like to drive okay wait no you've got to step back here the rav4 hybrid is one of the most popular hybrids on the market there's no way that this could be that disappointing i think I've driven a RAV4 hybrid and a Prime, and I've been pretty impressed with them in the past, with the exception of, I think I've driven a, uh, a TRD model of the RAV4 non-hybrid, and I, was, I, thought that, I thought that the ride quality and the interior just needed a, a touch-up. And I thought the Venza would be the product to do that. No, see, I drove, I, I, I also like the RAV4 hybrid, and it's a vehicle that I often recommend to people. But the problem with the, the I don't know if it was the particular Venza that I had, but the drivetrain was a disaster. Um, and by that, I, that, that's a harsh thing to say, but every time it, it was cold during the week that I drove it, like in, in Celsius, I guess probably minus 10, minus 12. So I don't know exactly what that translates to Fahrenheit, like maybe like 24 or something like that, 20 degrees. In any okay. case, it was well below freezing. And every time I turned on the car, it was like there was something seriously wrong with the motor. Like the engine would come on, it would be like, like I thought I'd thrown a rod or something, and this would go on for like ten to thirty seconds, and then would like slowly kind of smooth out. 
Okay. And then, but but then when I would be driving, like because you know it offers the ability to drive on battery only for very brief periods. When I would be stopped at a light or on battery only, whenever the gas motor would come on again, it was shaking the car and it was making just an, a very uncomfortable sound. And I don't remember that ever happening in the Rav Four. Yeah, that that seems right. I mean, um, I, I I'm I've always been impressed with the smoothness of that. I think it's two point five liter four cylinder, right? Yeah. Um, I've always been, I have been unimpressed with the transmission that, that the gas model is, is usually using, but the CVT has been pretty good. So I'm concerned about all of that. It was not a great experience. Smooth is not a word I would use to describe anything about my week with this vehicle. Oh, man. Um, it, it was fuel efficient. I will give it that even in the cold, but just the, the overall driving experience, it, it's, this is a $40,000 vehicle. I had a, I had the limited model. It starts at 33. But the limited is like the top tier. It has something. Sammy, what's the roof like? You were telling me about the roof it has. This is the coolest feature. I can't remember the the official name for it. Star something. Stargazer, not... I think. Uh, it is one of those roofs that can that can tint on demand. I think I think is the word. It can go from transparent to um, um, opaque in a, in a button press, which is so cool. I think that's so fancy. I love that. So it it had that. It had features like that. The interior is supposed to be upscale, and you know it doesn't look bad. Uh, it, it still has you know, fairly standard Toyota Switch gear, but it's relatively nice to look at. And I hauled uh, a bunch of tires in it, Sammy, just to uh, in memory of, of of you, in in honor okay. of you. Um, it's uh, been a while. I know. Well, I bought that. I bought that Impreza that we were talking about last week, and I had an extra set of winters that I needed to to haul around, and it did a reasonably good job at that. Although, again, the it had one of those um, cargo covers that not only rattled. But or it didn't it didn't rattle so much. I, I'm going to take that back. It's right in the way when you're trying to load stuff. It's like mid place. Um, if you fold the rear seats, it's exactly where you'd be pushing if you were pushing a big box towards the front. And right. I couldn't get the seats to go flat either, so that was kind of annoying. But uh, that speaks to the less useful aspect of the vehicle. These are things you're going to have to deal with when you have a tighter cargo compartment. Right. But I would never recommend this after having driven it. Just just about how rough the vehicle was. I mean, the power was okay. I think it's, what, 200-something horsepower. Um, and as okay. I mentioned, the fuel mileage is really good. 219 horsepower. That's that's the total system with the three electric motors and the, the gas engine together. But uh, the ownership experience, the quality of it, it was seriously not what I expected from a Toyota. I need more. I need more. Um, this seems like such an... This doesn't seem like a great execution of a product. Um, of the Rav Four is good. Why take the Rav Four, wrap it up in some nice clothes, and sell it again with a Toyota name and a Venza name that was of something like uh, that was a, that was pretty useful. I think it was a big station wagon. Essentially. Yeah, it was. It was like a Camry wagon, and, and it was back when they were making those weird crossovers that no one really knew what to do with. Like Honda had the Cross Tour which was mm. kind of a version of the Accord that was hideous. And then Toyota made the Venza, which looked way better and was largely based on the Camry, if I remember correctly. And I think uh, it was very reliable as a result. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just strange because is it because it was cold? Was there something wrong with my specific model? Or maybe this is because it's, I think it's a first year product, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah. Maybe the tuning for the winter hasn't been shaken out yet, but that's even stranger because the RAV4 hybrid's been around for a little while. So... Again, unless the tune is different for some reason in the Venza, I don't have an easy answer as to why this vehicle drove the way it did. But regardless about – even if it drove perfectly, is that enough to just re, 
wrap the, the the Rav Four? It's styling. I mean, if if you want a different styling, this is your chance to get it. And and as I mentioned, I don't have a problem with that. There is. You think there is a space? I mean, I guess there is a space to play between the compact and the three row. I don't uh, think this even, this segment. doesn't this doesn't I don't think it, it no it's it exactly the same yeah. yeah it's a smaller less useful version of the of the Rav Four but only in the sense of the interior like outside wise it's still the same size but like everyone else has something like a like a size wise a bigger product in that space like, uh, above their like a Honda I mean? Passport or something like a Passport like the um like the difference you know um I think the Man, you're killing me. The Outback and the Ascent, for example, there's like a baby version, there's a smaller car. The Murano and the Pathfinder, um, the Edge and the Explorer. Who, like, what else can we, can we bring up, right? Well, I mean, I guess you're saying that there's RAV4 and there's Highlander, right? That's, that's where you're yeah. going with this? And this Venza isn't enough of a step forward. It's not a step, it's a, it's a lateral step for styling, that's, that's all. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's, there was a demand for that. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, Sammy, right? I, why, people are allowed to have things just because they look different, you know? Like, maybe they were like, this is really cheap for us to do because we have already all of the, the components and the tooling and everything. It's just a different body. Let's just give it a flyer and see what happens. But they have, like, they have, like... For let's say let's let's say there are three versions of the Rav Four. There's a gas hybrid and plug-in hybrid. They have a gas and hybrid version of the Highlander, and then you just come out with this one single platform, uh, single powertrain Venza, and say, "Look, we did it. We got you. We got. We made a whole new product." It just seems it seems weird. There's something not right about this whole convers this whole product. There's something I, not right. That's the, I don't get it. The vaguest don't. criticism of no, a car that I can think of. The decision is just awkward. All right. Well, you know, I mean, I wasn't into it, so if you're not into it for totally different reasons, I can get on board with that as well. But I, uh, I, I think the Murano is an interesting comparison because that's also not super practical. But it's it, when it came out, it was pretty nice inside. And but it has a nice I'm, V6. It ha- it's not at all like the Rogue. But if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's also a single drivetrain vehicle, right? Yes. There's no four-cylinder version of the Murano. So. That's right. And it never really had any direct competitors. So unless you want to call Edge. The, the, the Edge, I guess that's true. But the Edge, was it really fashion forward or was the Edge just kind of a – placeholder two-row because Ford didn't have anything in the two-row segment at that point. Okay, then the Blazer. The Blazer just came out. I mean, the same with the yeah. Passport. I mean, it's not really, the Murano is not, you know, when they came up with the Murano, they weren't like, all right, in the future, <laughs> there's going to be this Blazer that's not, no, no, it's not what you think. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just weirds me out, this this whole new, this whole, this RAV4 in a different, with a different name and apparently not much better. Well, I mean, I wasn't impressed with it. It's not something I recommend. Um, I would, if you, if you're dead set on the on the Venza, if you like how it looks, I would wait until the next model year. Maybe they'll have this figured out, or get it if you're going to test drive it, drive it in the cold and get a cold, like a genuine cold start. Show up at the dealership, pick one up off the lot, not from the showroom, and just hear it when they turn it on, so you can experience what I experienced. Okay, great. Um... That, I think that's it for the cars that we're talking about, but we do have some listener feedback, right? Yeah, we, we have some of that. I also have a, a, a book review I'd like to do as well. Okay, let's do your book review, and then we'll get into what the listeners say. Okay, so I, I picked up this book from uh, Veloce Press. 
Uh, it's the book of the Honda S2000, and it's written by Brian Long. And uh, this book is interesting for a few reasons. The S2000 is is a vehicle that it was appreciated when it came out, but it never really did huge sales numbers. Uh, and then in recent years, it's become kind of a, a definite cult vehicle. And you're starting to see really crazy prices for people who are able to find any any example that hasn't been thrashed or something with reasonable mileage uh, on auction sites. So um, there's a huge community surrounding this vehicle. And this book by Brian Long gathers together a ton of information about not just the development of the S2000, but also all of the model year changes. And he kind of organized it in an interesting way, Sammy. Okay. Like, what does that mean? Well... The, the the first part of the book is it talks about development in terms of the concept cars that the S2000 uh, was derived from. The uh, original vehicle, the, there's a little bit of a history of Honda, which I, I kind of skipped over. But uh, it talks about the SSM concept, which was something that they had brought to auto shows in, in the 90s. And then kind of developed the S2000 from there. Uh, but when you got to the production models... I didn't realize this, but he the different markets that the S2000 was sold in, so North America, Japan, and Europe and Australia, were all fairly different. And some things they shared and other things they had major changes. And one of the most interesting – so he covers them market by market for each model year, which I think is an interesting approach. And the biggest change that I wasn't aware of was that when the – American market got the 2.2 liter engine in the AP2 version of the S2000, which was uh, kind of an engine that didn't have as high of a red line, had more torque, and was better designed for dealing with you know regular day to day driving. That motor didn't happen in Japan. They they kept the the regular mm. two liter, and what that means is the S2000 in Japan is a, still an AP1 while the Americans had an AP-2. And then a few years later, Japan did eventually get the different engine, and then it became an AP-2 in Japan as well. So there are all these different... Huh. Yeah, I, I had no idea. So that was, I'd always just thought AP-2 meant, like, new generation of the car, but no, it was really... It had to include the engine as well as the chassis updates to fully be considered an AP-2 by Honda. So it's stuff like that that I found fascinating about this book. The other thing that was really cool is there's tons and tons and tons of brochure uh, reproductions inside the book and photos and all sorts of original marketing materials from almost every model year. And that is wow. so hard to find, especially in the digital age now where, where the paper brochures have largely been thrown out. They weren't always digitized. They're not easily easily available for download or anything like that. So if you're a huge S2000 fanatic you're really going to be happy with this book because how that imagery is presented is gorgeous. I mean, it's almost like you're, it's a, it's a hardcover book and it's a reasonably big size. So it's almost like you're holding those oversized brochures in your hands for the first time. And I think that's really cool for anyone who either owns an S2000 and wants to have the, like you, you bought it secondhand and you don't have the original materials or you're just a fan who, who wants to kind of get into that retro marketing imagery. Very cool. Um, were there so is this like a it's not like a novel or something right like it's a is it a 
coffee table book style book? It's like, it's, well, how do you describe it? It's similar to a coffee, ta- coffee table style book, except the information that's inside of it is truly overwhelming. If you're someone who just wants to pick up and casually browse the brochures, you can do that. But if you start reading about all the different model year changes and the features and equipment that were available for every single year the S2000 was sold, you can really get lost. Like there's this is the I would say it qualifies more as a reference book than a coffee table book, even though the visual presentation is attractive enough for you to leave it on your coffee table. And do you think the book do you think after reading through this book, you have a better understanding or appreciation of those really high value S two thousands that are so difficult to get, you know, they're they're it's expensive to buy one now, man. Like a fresh I, one, it's hard. So I am not a huge fan of the car after having driven one. I appreciate it, but I don't want one. It's not the kind of experience that I want to have in a vehicle on the street. Um, What I found interesting about the book is Brian Long included a number of reviews from the different eras that the car... Well, it's, it's roughly the same era, but reviews from different model years and different markets. And he would quote directly from them. And some of the stuff that was said wasn't necessarily flattering. So some of the reviewers pointed out how it's a hard car to drive and have fun with unless you're constantly on the edge, right? Like constantly in the high revs. So it's honest in that in that aspect of it. It didn't really touch on the chassis and how um, the cars had a real tendency to switch ends if you got off power quickly in a corner. So that I think I would have liked to have seen more of in the book. But in general, it's extremely comprehensive. Cool. That's 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 interesting. And, um, and, and once again, it's the book of the Honda S two thousand. That's that's the full title by Brian Long, and it's it's put out by Veloce Publishing. Um, and you can get. If you want to grab it, I, I think it's available pretty much everywhere, but you can always go to uh, veloci.co.uk. That's V-E-L-O-C-E dot C-O dot U-K. That's their website. And um, they they have a, a huge number of auto books there. It's about $50 US to buy, and that feels like a good price for the resource you're getting. I mean, I, I do a lot of research online for the articles that I write, and I would love to have something like this book for every single car on the market. Like if I could pay a subscription service to do that online, I would. So having it in book form is just a bonus. Very cool. Um, let's. Anything else you want to add about that book? No. Nope. Nope. Do you want to talk about this uh, email we got from one of our listeners, Jake? Sure. Go, go for it. Uh, he has a question. He wants to know what his first car should be. He says... Um, that he's looking for something fast and he also wants something where he can carry all of his buddies in. What do you think? I think that someone's first car should be something that they're okay with, okay with, um, something bad happening to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, your, your first car is going to be something that you're going to have your first accident in, or someone's going to back into you, or you're going to get it stuck somewhere, or, you know, you're going to, you're going to have your first catastrophic repair to do like, there's a lot of firsts that go with that. And my first car, I, you know, I thought it was great. It was a terrible car. It was a 1980s Chevy Malibu. And when I got it, it was like 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, it was I, – I owned it for three months before I 720'd it into a ditch and cracked the frame. And then um, I was driving through my hometown and the frame in the back – the bumper was like bouncing up and down and it was touching the ground and like sparking. And I got pulled over by the cops and they eventually took it off the road for being unsafe. Anyway, <laughs> cars aren't like that anymore. But what I'm saying is your first car should be something where like it's cool, 
but it's not something you plan on keeping forever. And for that reason, Sammy, we were talking about this before the podcast, and we were thinking a good first car that has a lot of room for friends and is reasonably quick would be something like a Dodge Charger. Yeah, actually, I was thinking more along those lines because you can get one with a nice big engine. There's a ton of them, so if you're looking for parts or repairs, it shouldn't be too hard to to find. Uh, really spacious, and there's just a lot of. I think their the resale value is is kind of plummeting on them, especially earlier models. Like yeah, uh, it's, it's super late. cheap to pick up. Yeah, in the teens or something. Another super cheap to pick up car, Volkswagen Golf GTI, a four door one of those. I mean, they're really inexpensive. The older you go. And they're going to be more maintenance-intensive, but you have enough room for your friends, and it's fun to drive. And it's it's entirely the opposite uh, end of the experience spectrum compared to a Charger. But I think it would also be a good first car for that reason. Very cool. So that's it for this week's episode. Um, why don't we tell the listeners where we can where they can find more of our our our, video, our audio? What do we what do we do more of our what podcast? is it, audio? The audio podcast or the video podcast? We haven't shown to anybody. Uh, yeah, no, we're not doing the video podcast. The dancing podcast, the DDR podcast that you've been doing. No. You know, Sammy has a secret DDR po- I guess it's not secret anymore. Ben, why do you got to do this? So you can go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com uh, forward slash DDR. I wish. It's just unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You'll find all of our, I think, 214 episodes there plus the bonus episodes. Uh, you can subscribe. You can... There's all sorts of little icons that will take you to your favorite podcatcher. We're on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, all those podcast services. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that there via a form. There's a a form. You just fill it out. You click send, and it ends up with all your questions in our inbox. Sammy, if there's another way to get in touch with us, what would that be? You know what? You can go the old-fashioned form. Uh, You can just... Send an email. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. Or you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin. And you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Sammy underscore ha like you're laughing. And Sammy, uh, what are you going to be driving next week? Uh, I've got the Kona EV, which, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about it a little bit. And uh, I wanted to drive it in the winter and see how it goes. Okay. I'll be driving the Toyota Supra, which I'm also curious about driving in the winter. Very cool. So be sure to check back with us next week, and you can hear all about those cars and whatever else we want to talk about. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.